When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and Merry Christmas. If you're watching or listening to this the same week that I'm filming it, yes, I'm only a few moments ahead of the rest of you, <laughs> it is the Christmas week. And I hope that it's been a marvelous season of reflecting upon the birth of Jesus Christ, uh, looking for opportunities to be a blessing to those around you. You have been a blessing to me, and so I wanted to take just a few minutes today, this will be a much shorter lesson than what you're used to, to be able to talk about the Old Testament. I know that we finished it last week with Malachi, but I'm hoping today we can have a little fun and do some top 10 lists by way of recap for the Old Testament. And I hope that it will be enough to jog some memories, some positive ones from throughout this year. And since it's Christmas, and so many kind people from my ward have popped by to drop off goodies or treats, I'm, I'm hoping that this lesson can be a little goodie or treat for all of you for listening. Now, uh, speaking of listening, if you're hearing something in the background, so many of you have asked about the puppies. You want to see it, so here they are. Come on, guys. At least two of them, okay? Uh, their other brothers and sisters look just like them. There were... There were three brown and three white, <laughs> and here they are. Here, come look in the camera, guys. Look over here. There they are. And th these two represent the, the whole litter of six. <laughs> and they are cute little things, aren't they? To be able to see God's incredible creation, to watch them come into the world was an incredible experience for me. Uh, my daughters are much more of the, the pet people than I am. <laughs> and so they've been doing the lion's share of the, of the loving and cuddling and caring. But I'm amazed that these little ones will soon be in somebody's stocking uh, as, as wonderful moms and dads are so excited to be able to share the gift of life with, with their little ones. So uh, for all of you dog lovers out there uh, and pet lovers, this, I, I got so many comments that, okay, forget the Old Testament. We want to see the puppies. Uh, and, and here are at least two of them, okay? Now, to be able to talk a little bit more about the Old Testament without being so distracted, and I'm talking about me as well as you, I know that they're much cuter to look at than I am. Uh, I'm going to bring these back to mom, their mother, and, uh, and let them enjoy their own time as we talk a little bit about the Old Testament, okay? So pause for a moment, uh, and I'll be right back. Come on, guys. Let's go see your brothers and sisters. All right, I'm back. And yes, yeah, sorry, it's only me that's back. Uh, what you just saw was probably the cutest thing you've ever seen in the history of Unshaken, since you're used to just looking at my face. But I did want to let you see the puppies, as so many of you requested, and by way of Christmas present to you, and to just introduce the idea of gifts, because you've given me an incredible one this year in the chance to spend time with you in the Word of God. In fact, I was, doing, I was crunching some numbers. I mentioned last week that during the Haggai-Zechariah lesson, we crossed over the 200-hour mark of unshaken Old Testament scripture study. And so I, I printed off some, some stats for us 
because I was blown away by them. Uh, we spent a total of 203.5 hours studying the Old Testament this year in Unshaken. If you were to just start and run it straight through, uninterrupted, that would be eight and a half days of Old Testament scripture study, okay? Uh, but if you broke it up more wisely and did it all 365 days, that's only 33 minutes a day. So totally doable. Uh, but I was blown away by seeing how interested people are around the world in digging in and diving in to the Old Testament. As far as the YouTube statistics were concerned, there were 11 million views on YouTube, on the Unshaken channel so far in its existence. And over 5 million of them uh, happened this year in the Old Testament. Uh, those that listen to the audio-only version, because you, you know I have a face for radio, uh, that was over 5 million downloads for the podcast that we've had so far. And so I'm just, again, blown away by this. Uh, 3.2 million hours on YouTube. I, I can't tell how, what, the, what the listening time is on, on the podcast version. But 3.2 million hours on YouTube which comes out to 133,333 years of scripture study, if it were one person spending all of that time. Uh, it, I, I've talked with a friend of mine who is the host of another Come Follow Me YouTube channel. Uh, just wonderful souls. I, I'm so grateful for all of us that are able to do this. We feel like a big online faculty. And we just hope that people will find people that they can resonate with. Yeah, but, but he was sharing with me his excitement that there's, there's probably more time being spent in Scripture uh, lately through Come Follow Me than has ever been spent in the history of the world. And that is amazing to me. So to think about over 133,000 years plus of Scripture study is pretty amazing. And as an institute teacher myself, where an average size class would be about 30 students, and over the course of an entire semester, you spend just shy of 24 hours with them. At the end of every semester, I always tell them, we spent basically one day together. I hope it was a good day. Uh, but to take that one day of scripture study, multiply it by 30 for about an average size institute class, that means there's about 700 hours of learning taking place collectively in one semester of institute. So this year, if we just base our, our statistics on YouTube alone, this would be the equivalent of teaching over 4,500 institute classes in just this year alone, or of teaching 137,339 students for a semester. And if you're counted among those students that I've been able to spend this semester with in, in the Old Testament, then I am grateful. The more chances I get to meet you, I got to meet a, some wonderful, wonderful people in Montana, others in North Carolina, shout out to all of you, uh, many here in Utah, and, and bumping, sh rubbing shoulders with you in the hallways at church or in the aisles of Walmart or Costco. Uh, it's such a blessing to share in this mutual love that we have for the scriptures. Uh, I'm, as I've said many a time, I'm more amazed with you than you could ever be with me that you'd want to spend this much time. Though I have heard recently that it's not always it's not always seen as a positive, uh, at least not, not entirely a positive. I heard this from another family in my ward, which, and I died laughing, that uh, one of the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful family. In fact, this, uh, this, the mother in the family is a student that I taught seminary to 20 years ago. And, and here we are still being able to associate together and learn from one another. And, but the, the funny thing is, so she she's listens to Unshaken and, her, and, and subjects her, her poor family to it as well, including her young children. 
And at one point, so the story goes, uh, one of the brothers had done something uh, to hurt or bother or something. Another, I don't know all the details. Okay, I want to protect the, the innocent and the guilty as much as I can. But something happened between brothers, as is often the case, right? And I thought this was genius. They allowed the victim to help determine the punishment for the perpetrator. Now, it had to be within reason, of course, right? Uh, but this was a chance to, to, to ponder justice and mercy and judgment all rolled into one and figure out what, what punishment should fit the crime and what's something that isn't just condemnatory, but hopefully redemptive, something that they will actually learn from. Now, we don't want it to be so positive that it becomes the path of least resistance and it's like, oh, that's all I have to go through. I'm going to keep bothering you. No, it needs to be punishment, but it also needs to be redemptive. So something positive out of all this. What, what do you think, son? What should, what should happen to your brother? What should he go through as a result to help him learn his lesson? And talk about genius. The brother, the victim here said, well, I got a good idea. Something that'll be a, a positive to them, but something that'll be a little hard. Let's make, the, make, let's make my, little, my brother go down into the basement and watch Unshaken for two hours. And when I heard that, I died laughing, thinking, okay, well, for some this is scripture study, for others this is punishment. But either way, hopefully, we learn a thing or two. Uh, and so to my young friend that spent two hours with me in the basement, I apologize. But do your best to be kind to your brother, okay? Now, uh, what I want to talk about, though, uh, to introduce what we're going to see today for just a few minutes, is a gift that I received from my gospel doctrine teacher, uh, none other than he. Uh, in our ward, we have two amazing gospel doctrine teachers. And my, the one thing I miss about being in primary, I love my sunbeams, don't get me wrong, but I am sad to miss out on gospel doctrine because I love to learn. And I'm typically the type that would prefer to stay silent in the back of the room and just enjoy and learn from, from my ward members and from the amazing teachers that have been called. Well, I was invited in by one of those teachers uh, to come to his final lesson, at least a few minutes before, uh, for a few minutes before I had to head back to primary. And uh, he, he gave me a gift that blew me away. This teacher is a good friend and a wonderful, wonderful soul. Uh, just as sensitive to the Spirit as anyone I've ever known. And, and with a deep, deep desire to build faith. And he thanked him. He brought me in so he could thank me for being a part of the class, uh, unbeknownst to me. Uh, that he had been uh, quoting uh, Unshaken, or at least learning from it, and then probably doing a better job of conveying those truths to my ward members than I would have done it in person. But he gave me something that blew me away, and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, he gave me, and he warned me, since he knew, knew I'm a child of the 80s, and I've watched plenty of Indiana Jones, but he gave me my very own Ark of the Covenant. And I love this thing. Uh, this, this is about as good as it gets for um, a scriptural nerd like myself. He warned me about taking the lid off, uh, about faces melting if you've seen the movie, but I, I had to do it. I had to look inside to see, just in case, are the tablets of stone in there? Is the pot of manna? Is Aaron's rod? Because as you recall from our own time spent studying the Ark of the Covenant, those were things that were placed within this box a, by way of memorial, by way of memory and commemoration, some of the most important artifacts, if we can call it that, reminders of the hands of God in the lives of the ancient Israelites. And that got me thinking. Uh, you've heard me talk about the, the three shelves before. 
and there's a shelf for Revelation past and a shelf for Revelation present and a shelf for Revelation future. Many great and important things God has yet revealed. And that's the shelf that usually breaks when people are struggling with their faith. And as I've said before, shelf three typically holds up just fine if you have a very robust shelf two. And the kinds of things that you're learning right now uh, just motivate you and confirm your faith. And hopefully that's been happening for each of us every week as we've spent time in the Old Testament this year. But shelf number one is a magnificent one as well, as long as we keep it well inventoried and dust it off so we can go back and look inside the ark, or in our shelf analogy, look at shelf number one and see the kinds of glorious things the Lord has revealed to us in the past. If we remember in an active, intentional way, that invites the Lord to pull things down from shelf three onto shelf two where we can work with them and ponder them and learn from them. And that's what we'll be doing week after week next year in the New Testament. But as we celebrate Christmas, as we conclude this year, and as we hopefully look back on the experience that we've had, I hope that we have some things that we want to place within our Ark of the Covenant to remind us of the things that the Lord has taught us this year as we've studied his word. I, I want to put it in these terms, because if you think about, I mentioned them already, the three things that the, Lord, that the Israelites put in, as I was pondering, why those three? Think of it in these terms, and there, I'm sure there's many others. To the, the, the rod of manna is evidence of God's providing hand. The tablets of stone are evidence of God's presiding authority, giving them the law. And in a way, Aaron's rod is evidence of his protective power as, well, think of the good shepherd and the, the rod and staff that he uses to guide us and to protect us. That rod that, was, that Moses used to do the Lord's wonders and convince Pharaoh to let his people go. If you think about the proclamation to the world and the family and the role of a father to provide and preside and protect, as I look into the Ark of the Covenant, I see God doing all of that for us. The true father of the faithful and providing, thank you for the manna, presiding, thank you for the law, and protecting, thank you for that rod. Or think about the, the tablets Showing what God's life up on the mountaintop looks like. Perfect obedience. This is the law of the Lord. Meanwhile, we're stuck living down here in the valley. And as much as we would like to climb the mountain, to ascend the mountain of the Lord and live a perfect, godly, holy life, it's hard down here. Well, thank you for the pot of manna that shows us, that give us this day our daily bread and allows us to navigate life in this fallen sphere and the rod, to try to connect the two, to be given to a Moses or an Aaron, prophets and apostles in our day that are shepherding us and showing us how to navigate from the valley where we are eating the manna up to the mountain where we can fully live God's law. I think there's power there as well. I think there's power in considering those three elements as far as Jesus Christ is concerned and types and shadows of him. If you think about the tablets Jesus is the lawgiver, and so you see his handwriting there. He is the Word of God, and so to see the Word that God has placed there, Jesus is poking out behind every letter.
to see Christ as the rock and to see these tablets of stone that God has engraven, engraven his words into, hoping, as we'll see next year in the New Testament, that they're simultaneously being engraven upon the fleshy tables of the heart. To think about manna from heaven, who is Jesus? He is the bread of life, born in Bethlehem, house of bread. And the Father is providing Christ to us on a daily basis, if we'll just open our mouths and take it in. And the rod that buds and blossoms, even though it doesn't seem like it's, that's possible, because it's, it's now just a stick. It's not growing. There's no life in it. Or is there? Think back to Jesus as the branch. Think of him as the rod that grows out of the stump of Jesse, the stem that comes forth from a lifeless tree trunk. Jesus is the, ro is the rod. Jesus is the manna. Jesus is the, the stone tablets. Jesus is there within the ark of his covenant. He's not only inside it, he's on top of it. If you remember the lid, we talked about this when we studied the ark. The lid is called the throne of atonement. And atonement, if you remember in Hebrew, is the word used to cover things. So the coat of skins that covers our nakedness, cover, kafar, that's atone. The pitch that covered the ark and kept the, 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 the water out, that's the atonement. And here, the lid that covers the covenant, that's Christ as well. And so, yes, this is his atonement covering. It's the atonement throne because he sits there as he is covered, overshadowed by the wings of these cherubim. It's also known as the mercy seat. And so to picture the Lord himself sitting there, this becomes his throne as it stands there in the throne room of the King of Kings, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle of Moses or the temple of Solomon. Oh, there's such... Can you, can you see how inspired my gospel doctrine teacher is? <laughs> that he would give a scriptural nerd like me such an, a meaningful gift. But what I'm hoping that we can do, if we will come boldly to the throne of grace, if we'll boldly come past the veil in the temple, enter the holiest of places, kneel before this throne of the King of Kings, recognize him sitting upon his throne of atonement, his mercy seat, as he probably would come down to meet us, allowing him then to lift the lid and show us emblems of himself inside, emblems of his great gifts to us throughout time. But if he did, I have a feeling he would ask us, what would you like to place inside? There's room. <laughs> what would you bring to me to offer to me by way of gratitude by way of thanks, by way of worship, but also by way of remembering that we can place within this ark to preserve it so that anytime you need to come back into my presence and lift the lid and look within, you'll be able to see evidence of my providing, my presiding, my protecting, evidence of my, my word, my law, my love, my leadership, it's all there within those incredible emblems. But what would you bring? What would you add? And particularly this year, as we look back over the previous 12 months of Old Testament study, what stands out to you? 
In fact, if you have a minute and could write something in the comment section of one of your greatest takeaways from your Old Testament study this year, I would love to read them. I would love to just see and let we see each other and, and help, each other, help jog each other's memories uh, as we rejoice in the things that the Lord has given us. To see Him here. To see throughout the pages of the Old Testament that He is a God of covenant and He keeps it no matter what. That He is relentless in His redemption and never gives up on us despite how many times that we have offended Him or broken our side of the covenant. To look at the Lord and see Him as a God of, of love and of mercy. Yes, within the pages of the Old Testament. Is that one of your takeaways? Have we misjudged him or only seen the justice side without mercy poking through always just a verse or two away, as we've said? Do we see in God this year of Old Testament study a God of prophets, always calling watchmen, placing them on the tower, calling good shepherds to lead his flock, do we see in him a God of miracles? And if we have the faith to believe that he is yet a God of miracles, to see his hand still in our lives today. Again, if you have a chance, whether you share it in the comments, whether you write it in your journal, whether you ponder it and hope that it's engraven a little deeper in the fleshy tables of the heart, I do pray that you'll spend some time as this year comes to its close, reflecting and intentionally remembering the things that the Lord has taught you through His Spirit in the pages of the Old Testament. I actually want to do a little of that ourselves. And, and I don't want to belabor the points because we already have, in a way, 200 hours worth, right? And so everything I'm going to bring up today has, uh, has all kinds of, of lesson material behind it somewhere in the last 200 hours of Unshaken. And so this, I want to be brief for your sake, uh, but I do want to present what I call some top 10 lists. And I know there's going to be pushback. I know you'll all be disappointed in the top 10 that I come up with because it's all, it's all personal, right? And again, if you, want to, if you want to push back on any of those things, feel free to fill the comment section with that as well. Like, I can't believe you put that number two when, when there's something else that's way higher than that. Uh, or things that I missed entirely. But I do want to spend a few moments talking about some. I mentioned just a moment ago that God is a God of miracles. And the Old Testament makes that abundantly clear. We'll see more of that in the New Testament next year in the personal ministry of Jesus. But talk about shock and awe kinds of miracles in the Old Testament. When people talk about things being of biblical proportions, so often it's Old Testament proportions that they're talking about. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that veggie tales are made of. Okay? So how's this for a top 10 list of miracles from the Old Testament? Number 10, the budding and blossoming of Aaron's rod. Don't remember that one? We'll lift the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember they were wondering who's the, the priesthood tribe? Who should it be? And they bring all them in. And to see the Lord make it known that out of a mere stick, because that's all any of us are, uh, none of us deserve to, to blossom or bud, really, let alone bring forth almonds as Aaron's rod did. But the fact that God chooses us, touches us, grasps that rod, just that stick, but allows us to become something, I, I am moved by that miracle. Or number nine, Gideon's wet fleece and dry fleece. His sense of inadequacy, wondering, how can I possibly do this? And testing the Lord in a way. Well, I guess it's only fitting. God was testing him. 
but to wring out that fleece on dry ground and have living water pour forth. What a miracle of reassurance to him and to us. Number eight, the crossing of the Jordan once the priests got their feet wet. Oh, just have enough faith to start stepping in and wait to see the miracle of God follow. I love that miracle and the reassurance that it must have given Joshua, knowing that God would be with him as he had been with his illustrious predecessor. Speaking of, of predecessors, how about uh, miracle number seven, Elijah's miracles, and lump them all together. There's so many of them. Fire from heaven, multiplying the meal and the oil, raising the widow's son, parting the Jordan River himself as he was about to be taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. Oh, talk about a man of miracles. There's Elijah for you. But number six, I do have to give Elisha, his successor, just a tiny bit of bump on this one. These are close, neck and neck. But I do place Elisha's even higher. Remember, he did pray for a double portion of the spirit God had placed upon Elijah. I don't know if it was fully double, but I would give him a pride of place with number six. Multiplying the oil, raising the woman's son in such an incredible way healing Naaman of his leprosy, horses and chariots of fire surrounding him. Those that be with us are more than those that be with them. So, so such powerful miracles in Elisha's ministry. Number five, the angel of the Lord decimating the Assyrian army outside of Jerusalem. You remember Isaiah's incredible prophecy to, and promise to Hezekiah? Don't even worry. They won't even shoot an arrow. And in the face of that impossibility, with the fate of Judah riding on, riding on this, hanging in the balance. Israel had already been scattered. What's next for the southern kingdom? Well, deliverance is. As the angel of destruction goes through and 185,000 casualties later, the Assyrians <laughs> turn tail and run and are delivered, as a, and Israel is delivered as a result. Something along those lines, but in some ways a little bit more shock and awe because we're dealing with the cosmos on this, uh, on this miracle. Number four, I would give it to Joshua and the, the time where he was in the middle of a fierce battle in the Valley of Ajalon and, and the sun and moon stand still so he can finish the battle and save the day. I mean, for God to place something as significant as day and night on hold. To, to stop the earth moving in its course, there's miracle for you. And it's one, as I've mentioned before, that I always pray for because I need more time to get everything done. Now, if that's 10 through 4, what are the top three miracles of the Old Testament, in, at least in my estimation? Number three, I would give to Genesis 1 and the creation of the heavens and the earth. I mean, if you really put it, if you think about it, why wouldn't that be number one? Uh, it's, it's where this all begins. And to see God's loving hand, to see the artistry behind creation, to take something without form and void and turn it into something even he can consider very good. Oh, with all of the symbolism and personal relevance that we saw in that great miracle. Uh, still number three, though, in my book. Because as far as our own personal creation and our own personal deliverance, to see what the Old Testament keeps coming back to over and over and over again. The thing that movies are made of, reflecting on this incredible book of Scripture, 
Number two, the second greatest miracle I can think of in the Old Testament has got to be the Exodus and all of the miracles that it entailed. To think of what Moses and Aaron did with that rod, to think of the, the plagues of Egypt, talk about shock and awe, to take the greatest world superpower of the time to its knees and then to bring forth a nation of slaves in hopes of creating a holy nation out of them. If the parting of the Jordan was number eight, then the parting of the Red Sea, I think, yeah, deserves to be up a few notches. Uh, and so I would place the Exodus at number two. But if creation was three and Exodus was two, what on earth could possibly be number one? Well, for this one, I have to tip my hat to Jeremiah, who said that the day will come that people no longer refer to God as the God of the Exodus, but instead begin to refer to him as the God of the gathering. If the Exodus is eclipsed by the miracles of the Latter-day Gathering, that God will pour out His Spirit upon servants and handmaidens, as Joel said, that hunters and fishers will go forth and begin gathering Israel on both sides of the veil to see what President Nelson is presiding over at this time of the Earth's history as we try to prepare the Earth for the second coming of Christ. Is there a greater miracle than that? And it's one that we get to be involved in. That's incredible. Creation gave the chance for all, to give a place for all of us to come and to be, to be proven, to be tested, to have the chance to learn and grow up in God. But it's the atonement of Christ that makes up for all the mistakes that we make in, in this place of testing and, and probation, this place of preparation. So yes, creation ought to be overshadowed by atonement. And it's the gathering of Israel that extends the blessings of the atonement of Jesus Christ to all of God's children. Miracle number one, yeah, I think so. Now, if that's our top 10 list of miracles, how about a top 10 list of the, the greatest heroes of the Old Testament? This was hard because there are so many. In fact, I had to, to, uh, to cheat a little bit here. Because I decided I'm going to do a top 10 list just of the male heroes so I can then do a top 10 list of the female heroines. Okay? And for this top 10 list of the male heroes, I decided not to count dispensation heads because that would take up most of the, of the spots. Okay? And so with my apologies to Adam and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses, who would definitely be near the, the top of any list, how's this for a list of top 10 heroes from the Old Testament? Number 10, how about Cyrus the Great, the king of the Persian Empire? I wanted to include him because a non-member, quote-unquote, deserves to be on this list. To remind all of us of God's care for all of his children. So often he's seen as, a, a, as exclusivistic in the Old Testament. And it's just his people and, and to act with everybody else. And that's not the case. As we saw the gathering of Israel promised, but also the gathering of Edom and Ammon and Moab and all these other nations, God cares about everyone. And so to put Cyrus on this list for allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem, for making that possible, and to make possible the rebuilding of the temple, to have been prophesied over a century in advance by Isaiah, and then better yet, to live up to the prophecy. That's pretty impressive, Cyrus. Congratulations on making the cut. Number nine, I'll put the reforming kings of Judah in this slot. They'll have to share it. But kings like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah for leading in righteousness, 
for going against the grain, often for, for honoring their heavenly father more than their earthly father, because so often they were raised in wickedness, but turned things and ended up turning their whole people back to the Lord. Incredible stories in the books of Kings based on those three heroes. Well, while we're doing dealing with groups and sharing, <laughs> sharing the laurels, for number eight, can I list Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael? Better known, <laughs> or perhaps worse known if we're going with Babylonian names, <laughs> with the names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These four Hebrew youth, I wanted young people on this list because it's not just long-bearded prophets that we see in the Old Testament. But to picture this group of young Hebrew boys refusing to be Babylonified. Talk about inspiration for all of us trying to live worthy lives in the midst of spiritual Babylon. Now they deserve our gratitude, our honor. They deserve to be part of this list. All that they did, even standing up for truth at the risk of their own lives. Now, number seven, I want to bring Ezra to the stand and congratulate him for helping people start over after devastating situations, for refocusing people on the Word of God when it had long been forgotten, and for instilling true godly sorrow in people that had made mistakes and then working them through the difficult pathway of repentance. I love Ezra for that. And so often he goes underappreciated in our Old Testament study. And so I'm giving him a number seven place, but not number six. For six, I, I, I said I wasn't going to use dispensation heads, and technically he wasn't, but we got to put Jacob on this list somewhere. And Jacob, who becomes Israel, definitely deserves to be remembered, since all of posterity looks back to him as members of the house of Israel. Here's someone who recognized the worth of God's blessing and birthright, even when others Esau, namely, did not. He makes the cut for having wrestled an angel and, and prevailing, but in the same instance, allowing God to prevail in his life. All of we, check your patriarchal blessing, all of us who are part of the house of Israel also can look back with gratitude to Father Jacob for all that he did. Now, number five, and yes, I'll probably get some pushback, and how could you rank them higher than Jacob? But I think in terms of the leadership I mean, Jacob's leadership was incredible in the moment, but the house of Israel was just beginning. But for number six, I want, or number five, I want to give the laurels to Joshua and Caleb because their leadership was over the entire house of Israel. And back in Moses' time period, when they were called to be two of the 12 spies, those were the only two that came back having chosen faith over fear and trying their best to... to instill that faith in others, unsuccessfully in the first instance, successfully in the second. I give them credit for trusting the Lord's strength over the strength of their enemies. I, try, I credit Joshua for filling impossibly large shoes. And I credit Caleb for having the courage to say, give me this mountain when no one else seemed to be able to conquer it. I love those two. Number four, can I choose someone that hopefully will represent his entire prophetic class of peers? And that's the prophet Isaiah. Oh, to, to let him symbolize every prophet that deserves to be among our list of heroes. But to, to be a prophet among prophets, to be the most quotable Old Testament prophet, uh, someone that even Jesus himself commands us to study, uh, to be one who who helped initiate that miracle I mentioned earlier, to preserve the house of Judah, 
to inspire King Hezekiah in his reforming efforts, to inspire every prophet that seemed to follow in his wake, uh, to, to populate the Book of Mormon with incredible passages, as well as the Doctrine and Covenants and, and the New Testament. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't spend too much time studying Isaiah. So he definitely deserves to be on our list. But top three, and again, f f fight me on this. Push back in the comments, please. I'd love to know your, your, your list. But I do want to include David in this top three, at least from an Old Testament perspective, from a Jewish perspective. You have to honor David, at least the young David. And so I'll put, I'll, I'll put the young David here in number three. And I'll congratulate him for being a good shepherd after the image of the best shepherd himself, for having the courage to face Goliath, but also having the practice with the lion and bear beforehand, to see in him a man with a heart after the Lord's own heart, for turning the other cheek repeatedly in the face of javelins flying off the hand of Saul, oh, to, to see who he was as a boy, as a young king, to to gather Israel in his own way and to create a kingdom, to, to prioritize the temple in such a way that Solomon had an easier time being able to build it. I do love the young David, and so he deserves at least to be somewhere on our list. Who would I place at number two then? I would put Joseph. Again, the, all the dispensation heads would vie for these top places, but since I excluded them already, it does leave a space for Joseph to enter and to see in him someone like Daniel who was willing to be faithful in enemy territory, but I mean, to, to do it against such odds, to, to rise to be second only to Pharaoh himself, to forgive his brothers for the horrific things that they had done to him, to see God's hand in his challenges. And from start to finish, to be such a type and shadow of Jesus. One of the greatest that we could ever ask for. He's definitely a hero of mine. The fact he gets so much time in a very packed book of Genesis suggests just how important he's supposed to be, as in our perspective on the Old Testament. Who gets number one then? My greatest hero of the Old Testament. Well, in some ways, if I excluded uh, dispensation heads, I'm really cheating on this one, but Jehovah is the greatest hero of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ in pre-mortality, leading his people, giving them types and shadows to point them to him and what his, his mortal ministry would be, what his reign as king of kings would be. Oh, there's the, old, the whole Old Testament is, is a message about him. And to see his power, to see his mercy, to see his justice, to see his judgment, to see his miracles, to see his hand in all of this, he definitely deserves first place for putting up with Israel century after century after century, all because he promised that he would. To be so fiercely loyal and so committed to the covenant that he would be just and demand that we live up to our end, but also merciful to give us chance after chance to do so. To continue calling prophets, to, to never give up on us. I am grateful for the God of the Old Testament, and I testify of him.
I'm sure there are multiple honorable mentions that we should have given. I could name Jonathan and Aaron, Isaac, Gideon, Nehemiah, Abedmelech, the Ethiopian that helped deliver Jeremiah from prison. All of the prophets, major or so-called, quote-unquote, minor. Now oh, the Old Testament is so full of heroes. No wonder in Hebrews chapter 11, we are taken through a hall of fame of faith. And it's all Old Testament figures. Uh, we, could, we could turn there and get some pushback on my top ten list, if you choose. But if those are some of the mighty heroes of the Old Testament, how about the mighty heroines? And here it was hard to be selective as well. Uh, and when I get to teach women in the scriptures courses, we spend the bulk of our time in the Old Testament because the, these heroines, these sister saints, uh, their stories and their examples are absolutely breathtaking. Tenth on this list I would give to Rahab. Again, a chance to honor an, a non-Israelite who became an Israelite by accepting the God of Israel. I credit her for risking her life to preserve the lives of the Israelite spies. She played a major role in the conquest of the Promised Land, giving them confidence that God would be with them from the very first battle. She saved her family from, from her own society. She sided with Israel when none of her people would. So, and she's part of the genealogy of Jesus, as we'll see in Matthew chapter 1. Number nine, I would give to Abigail. Remember her? We only see her really in one chapter. But what a, a long shadow she casts as she inspires us through her type and shadow of Jesus. She is one of my heroines because she tries to save her husband from her own, his own foolishness. My wife does the same for me. She takes his sins upon herself and plays the part of Jesus in doing so. He keeps that hero, young David, from giving in to the lesser angels of his nature and, and keeps him erring on the side of mercy rather than justice. Number eight, I would give to Ruth for her fierce loyalty, for putting the needs of others above her own, for being willing to leave her people to be numbered among the people of God, for seeking shelter under, under the skirts of a near kinsman, or as we say, as we translate those words, under the wings of her Redeemer. Uh, Ruth, uh, may her people be my people, and her God my God. Number seven, I would give the, the credit to Rebecca for having courage and for taking initiative in leaving her family to join the the patriarchs and matriarchs among whom she would be numbered for taking the initiative when she knew she'd received a revelation from the Lord and wasn't sure how her husband would respond, but made sure that that revelation was fulfilled, that promise. And being willing to face whatever would come as consequence. She really is an incredible, incredible woman. Number six, can I give to Deborah and Jael? Can they share that one? Again, hard to put them above Rebecca or Ruth or Abigail or Rahab, but they led multitudes, at least in Deborah's case. In fact, putting them side by side was a chance for me to honor women both serving outside the home, thank you, Deborah, and women serving inside the home, thank you, Jael, both of whom are, we could refer to as mothers in Israel, independent of any maternal status as far as their own children are concerned. Uh, but what they did, what they had the courage to do, and the way they encouraged Israel Oh, some so-called mighty men that didn't make my list of heroes that were kind of hiding behind the courage of women like these. Number five, can I give to Miriam, the prophetess? Uh, 
right alongside Moses, the prophet, her baby brother. With Miriam, I'm sure she would want to share. She learned a little about meekness from her brother. I'm sure she'd want to share with her mother, Yocheved. Oh, those two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, even the daughter of Pharaoh. All of these women who risked their lives to deliver the deliverer and continued playing roles beyond. I mean, to see Miriam singing the song of Miriam after they crossed the Red Sea. Oh, if the Exodus is going to be such a high miracle, then the heroine of the Exodus deserves to be on this list as well. Number four, I would give to Esther for knowing when to lie low and when to rise and shine. I'd give it to her for the role she played in preserving her people. In the face of the threat of genocide, I would give it to her for arising and fulfilling her role when sent to the kingdom for such a time as hers. And I hope that we would have the courage to do likewise. If we perish, we perish. So be it. Now again, if that's 10 through 4, who are my top three? These may be unsurprising to you, but number three I would give to Sarah. Wonderful mother Sarah. Look to the rock from whence you are hewn, and that's Sarah. I credit her for not giving up on God, or on Abraham, or on herself, even when for a time it seemed like she might be the weak link in the chain of God's covenant. I credit her for thinking outside the box, and then accepting when God said, no, the blessings still lie within it. I bless her and credit her for her raw humanity and her wrestling with a lesser self, but always coming out on the other side with her greatest self. I credit her for laughing and rejoicing under circumstances that few people would have been able to laugh or rejoice over. She is an incredible person. One, again, that deserves all the space she gets in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But number two, can I rewind the clock a little earlier and give it to Mother Eve? Our glorious Mother Eve, as later scripture attests, for having the courage to step out of the security of Eden, for making a wise decision, a courageous decision, a self-sacrificing decision, for which she would be maligned and misunderstood by posterity till the end of time. Well, not quite that long. By the end, we'll, we'll know better. We'll know what she did and why she did it. And honor her for all that she accomplished. I mean, to have the courage to step into a fallen world and then to bring children into it and to keep bringing children into it, even when the world seemed to be falling further and further and further, to lose an Abel and a Cain, basically in the same moment, and yet to not lose hope through it all. I honor Mother Eve for all that she's done, but I still can't give her number one, because number one, the greatest heroine in the Old Testament, would be our Heavenly Mother, of whom I wish we knew so much more. But to see her alongside our Heavenly Father and her roles in creation, to see her in Genesis chapter 1, as male and female are created in the image of God, to see her hidden in Proverbs as holy wisdom 
standing alongside God in premortality. Oh, there are other places that we can catch glimpses of her. But to see her there permeating the pages of the Old Testament, that's a chance to be able to ponder her role in all of this. Now, some honorable mentions. How can I not list Rachel and Leah? That was hard. What about Hannah, her glorious song of faith? How about Tamar and her courage and initiative? So many of these women are in the genealogy of Jesus also. Huldah, the prophetess, we don't spend enough time with her. Or Zipporah or Vashti, so many amazing honorable mentions. And again, feel free to fight back and remind me of people that I've forgotten. Now, people that maybe should be forgotten if, there were, if their lessons weren't so important to remember. Can I give you a top 10 list of villains from the Old Testament? And you can boo and hiss to your heart's delight. Now, feel free to add some more because this was a hard list to narrow down as well. Number 10, Samson. Or if you'd like, you can add Delilah to the mix. I put him on this list, though he was meant to be a hero. Well, that's why he's a villain, because he fell short so far from that incredible potential. He was a child of promise, the one Israelite judge that really seemed tailor-made to deliver Israel. And yet he seemed to be delivering himself to whatever he chose, putting himself in harm's way, because I know I'm strong enough to get out of it. No, for what you fell short of, for breaking your covenants and becoming as weak as anyone else, Samson makes our list of villains. Number nine, I would put Balaam, famous for being dumber than his donkey, <laughs> who the Lord then made not so dumb and allowed to speak to a, a prophet. Again, this is a chance to lament the fact that someone fell so far short of their potential. Balaam was supposed to be a prophet, hired by Balak to curse the people of Israel. And I can't do it. I can't do those kinds of things. But let me hitch along, you know, let me come along for the ride and see if God changes his mind for flirting with temptation, like Samson had, until he eventually gave in to it, for seeking the honors of men instead of the glory of God. Those, for those reasons, Balaam, you are on this list. Number eight, I'm going to give it to a, a tie here, to Rabshaka, the general of Assyria, and to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And I'm putting you on the list of Old Testament villains because of what you did against the people of Israel. To Rob Shaka to talk smack in the Hebrew language, to use your bilinguality in such a negative way, that was, that was, that was low. Okay? And Nebuchadnezzar, you were an instrument in the hands of God and then took all the credit for that yourself. The Assyrians, just like the Assyrians had before. That's why you're sharing this, this dubious distinction. Uh, you took credit and became prideful in the fact that you were God's chastening rod. And on the heels of you boasting over destroying Israel and Judah, you ended up getting destroyed, you Assyrians and you Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar, to have been taught, to have been given a prophetic dream and warned about your, your statue, and then to turn around and go build almost that exact statue, only to see... Eventually, it be destroyed by the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Oh, have we, have we learned? I, I don't think so. Number seven, again, uh, co-ownership of this prize. Let, let me give it to Ahab and Jezebel for increasing idolatry in Israel. Ahab, you were bad enough on your own, and then you married worse. 
and, and Jezebel brought in even worse idolatry to Israel. For murdering to get gain, which is, is the problem of the Gadianton robbers, which is the problem of secret societies and so much sin. For withstanding Elijah's calls to repent, for holding on to wickedness, even though it became pretty obvious there on top of Mount Carmel that your gods were far inferior to the, gods of Israel, to the God of Israel. How about number six? Let me give it to Haman. Anyone who wants to wipe out an entire people, genocide, out of pride, out of ambition, out of jealousy, the, the poetic irony of being hanged upon the, your own gallows, Yes, Haman deserves to be on the list. And plenty of boos and hisses during Purim uh, to, to excoriate him. How about that? That's, the, that's the, the bottom half, though. Top half of our list of villains. Number five, I would give to the Pharaoh of the Exodus for refusing to know God or his servants, even though God was so adamant about introducing himself. I'll give it to Pharaoh for hardening his heart over and over and over again until the only solution God had for that hard heart was to completely break it. For bringing Egypt to its knees because he refused to ever bow to the God of Israel himself. For returning like a dog to its vomit over and over and over and making all these false promises that of course I'll let your people go. And then not allowing that to happen. For driving headlong into a parted Red Sea, you can't get much more obvious that God's hand is with the people you're pursuing. But to rush headlong into his own destruction, yes, Pharaoh, you're number five. Who's worse than he, though? I would put Jeroboam. And yeah, you could probably argue with me on this one, but Jeroboam, you, you're the, the wicked king of Israel that subsequent kings were measured against. Uh, you are the one that really caused this internal schism. I mean, yeah, you can blame Rehoboam for his role. Uh, and maybe your initial departure was justified. But then to set up false places of worship, rival temples, golden calves, did you learn nothing from the Exodus yourself? And to initiate idolatry in Israel that I mean, Ahab and Jezebel are on this list partially because of you, Jeroboam. And so many wicked kings of Israel that could have been on this list are simply following your bad example. And so, Jeroboam, I do believe you're justified in, in, do, in being on this list so high at number four. But number three, I would give to Cain. Again, if Ahab and Jezebel were guilty of murdering to get gain, Cain was the one that, that started it all. When we talk about the fall, I would call Adam's and Eve's more of a jump. A courageous one, going downward, but at least moving forward. Cain's was all downward. His was all fall. And he knew better, because he'd been taught by incredibly righteous parents to, to know God and to fight against him. To have a brother and and kill him for personal gain, for refusing to be his keeper or much of a brother at all. Cain deserves to be on this list. But number two, someone even worse than Cain, the being that inspired him, and that would be Lucifer, for wanting his own glory and premortality. We studied that in the book of Abraham, right? 
to see that uh, against his, his brother. No wonder he could inspire Cain to do something similar. For going up against Moses in Moses chapter 1 and seeking to be worshipped himself. For all the things that he did in the Garden of Eden as inspiring that slithering snake. For tempting Eve and Adam and not knowing the mind of God as he did so. Moving the work forward even as he was trying to get it to come crashing to a halt at the very beginning. For being the prosecuting attorney against innocent Job. For pushing and fighting against Joshua the high priest in the book of Zechariah. We don't see Satan too often, personally, in the Old Testament. But we see his handiwork on practically every page. Which is why he's still only number two for me. Because who's number one? The worst villain I recognize on the pages of the Old Testament. Brace yourself. Because it's me. And if you're willing to join me, it's you too. I've mentioned before that in C.S. Lewis's great book, The Great Divorce, all these people in heaven that take, excuse me, from hell that take field trips to heaven and then all end up deciding to get back on the bus and go back to hell where they're comfortable. What I hate about that book, well, what I love about it, but what I hate about myself is that I see myself in all of his negative characters. And that's what I get out of my Old Testament study as well. I see myself in the villains of the Old Testament. And I want to avoid their fate. I want to repent of their behavior. I don't want to follow their examples. I want to follow the examples of the heroes and heroines that I listed already. But because I don't always do so, I do have to list myself as the worst villain that I see in the Old Testament. You can add plenty of dishonorable mentions if you choose. I think you could put the kings of united Israel there. Saul, older David, and Solomon. Again, for falling short of potential. They could have been on the list of heroes. Do they deserve to be on the list of villains? Perhaps. What about Akan? And the, the, the damage he caused in the conquest of, of Canaan because of his selfishness during the Battle of Jericho. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. You lost the Ark of the Covenant, and what a tragedy there. What about the men of Gibeah who sexually and physically assaulted the Levite's concubine and caused massive casualties among the people of Israel based on the war that followed? You could add David's sons, Amnon and Absalom. You could put King Manasseh and all that he did. There are, there's no shortage. Uh, but again, I hope that we learn from their negative examples to be wiser than they. Now, with all of those lists of top tens, there's two other lists that I'd like to share with you in the last few minutes of our, our time together this week. One, and this has more to do with, with Christmas time. Because as we close, as we happen to be closing our Old Testament study uh, in December, if that's when you're watching this, uh, the chance for Christmas to reflect on the birth of Jesus and to see all that the Old Testament did to prepare the way for him I want to give you a list of my top 10 types and shadows of Jesus first, and then one last top 10 list after this. But to see Christ poking out behind the symbols of the Old Testament is one of the great joys of studying. It, I mentioned this, I think, back in January in our, one of our first lessons, that it's the chance to play Where's Waldo? But you're searching for someone far more worthy of worship than Waldo could ever be. You're looking for Jesus in places that 
that he's hidden in. So number 10 on that list, I would say the brazen serpent. Lift, lift it and then look and live. To see him who redeems us from every fiery flying serpent, if we'll simply look to him in faith. Writers of the Book of Mormon would look back at that type and shadow and know what it was, what it was pointing to. Jesus himself would bring it up as he speaks with Nicodemus. Number nine, I am cheating here somewhat, but can I include all the sacrifices of the book of Leviticus? The sacrificial ritual element of the Mosaic law, it was all meant, this is Amulek speaking. He would applaud me and probably say, number nine is way too low. But when Amulek says that every, every jot and tittle, every wit was his word, every tiny detail about all of those sacrificial offerings was meant to point to the great and last sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So it definitely deserves to be on our list. I would actually pull out one of them, though, for special, uh, special honor and elevate to number eight the cleansing of the leper. We spent some good time in Leviticus 14 on this one and talk about every wit pointing to, ahead to Christ. No wonder Jesus tells the lepers he heals in the New Testament, go to the priests and fulfill the commandments of Leviticus 14. Then you'll get to know me in very, very deep and personal ways. I love that one. So that's my number eight. Number seven, I hinted at when we talked about our heroines, and it would be Ruth, seeking shelter under the skirts of her near kinsman, Boaz. Because when you take the Hebrew and realize she is seeking shelter under the wings of that mother hen, her redeemer, welcoming her in to that safe shelter in the house of Israel, that's what he's doing to every Gentile adopted into the house. It's what he's doing for each of us as a near kinsman, as a true redeemer. And Ruth plays that part absolutely beautifully. Number six, as a type of sh and shadow of Christ, I would give to Daniel in the lion's den. And partly because to me it was so surprising just to finally recognize, wait, he was supposed to die there. That was his tomb. And there was a stone there. But the stone was rolled away in the morning, and he that was supposed to be dead was found to be living. What a beautiful type and shadow of Jesus. Number five, I, meant, I hinted at in, among our heroines, and that was Abigail. I, I, what a story to see her, her willingness to take upon the sins, the sins of the guilty being passed on the head of the innocent, to personify that. Uh, and to, to eventually marry David. I, there's so many symbols when she's the Christ figure, she's the church figure, she's the Israel figure. There, it's an incredible type and shadow of Jesus. So I'll give her number five. Number four, one of my favorite miracles was Elisha's raising of the son of the Shunammite woman. Remember when we talked about this? You're not going to be able to do this by proxy. You have to go yourself. Elisha. You can't just wave your magic wand, or in your case, your staff. God couldn't just wish away our sin and death. Christ himself had to come and condescend and lie down upon us, matching eye to eye and mouth to mouth and body to body, and infuse our death with his life. That's condescension. That, what, what a type and shadow of Jesus in that miracle. Top three though, who would I give them to? Number three, give, I give it to Joseph in Egypt. 
being betrayed by his brothers, but feeding and then forgiving them, preserving their lives in the face of famine. Even in that story when Judah takes Benjamin's place in prison and lets him go free, everything about the Joseph story is pointing us to Jesus. So I, I do give him pride of place in the bronze medal, number three. But who gets the silver? For this, I would give it to Abraham and Isaac. Especially when we study Genesis 22 through the lens of Genesis 17 and see that they had something had been forgotten in time. People were misjudging and misunderstanding the atonement that was promised them, thinking that it was a brother rising up against brother, something salvific about Abel's blood. Oh no, this was not a brother against brother. This was not Lucifer overcoming Jesus on the cross. No, it was vice versa. And in reality, it was a loving father offering his beloved and only begotten son. When Jacob in the Book of Mormon looks back to the, his scripture, the Old Testament, and sees Abraham and Isaac as such an obvious symbol of the father and the son, for us to see in that brutal binding something that would be far more brutal with Jesus himself. There would be no ram in the thicket for him because he was the ram in the thicket for Abraham and Isaac and for all of the rest of us. That is as deep a type and shadow of Jesus as you could ask for in the pages of the Old Testament. With perhaps the exception of one thing. And again, from a Jewish perspective, the fact that this type and shadow has been celebrated every year, ever since it was first initiated, if the Exodus is so high on our list of miracles, then the Passover that, that celebrates it, that commemorates it, but also that points forward to its ultimate fulfillment, Passover is number one on my list. Go celebrate a Passover Seder around Easter time. Think of it here at Christmas time and realize that what finally frees the slaves is the death of the firstborn. And that only through his blood, the Lamb of God, without blemish, firstling of the flock, as we paint our home with that, as we cover every going in and coming out with that precious blood, only thereby can we be saved. And I testify of that, especially at this Christmas season. One last list to give you. And again, in the spirit of Christmas, and in the spirit of looking forward to our study of the New Testament starting next week, and looking back at the last 51 weeks of study of the Old Testament, this is my list of top 10 messianic prophecies in the pages of the Old Testament. All of these with such anxious, eager anticipation, looking forward to the coming of Christ that we're celebrating this time of year. Number 10, simple, straightforward. Coming from one of our villains on the list is Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24, 17. There shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Star? How's the star of Bethlehem? Well, the real star was not the one in the heaven. It was the one that came down from heaven to occupy that meek manger. 
the scepter rising. He is the king of kings. He is the king of the Jews. Herod's place notwithstanding. Oh, forget Aaron's rod under the mercy seat. Christ himself will carry the scepter as he comes forth from his throne. The ni my ninth favorite messianic prophecy comes from Micah and perfect for Christmas is this mention of Bethlehem with the baby that would make it famous. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Some a, a town of, oh little town of Bethlehem, a forgotten village, or it would have been forgotten. This is, as was so often the case, the Lord lifting the lowly and taking a village that would have been so easily forgotten and attaching his unforgettable name to it. What a beautiful messianic prophecy. We'll see it as we study Matthew chapter 2 in a couple of weeks. How about number 8? Let me give this to Moses since I couldn't put him on our heroes list. <laughs> But it's Moses' own prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. If I give Joseph credit for typifying Christ in almost every aspect of his life, the same could be said of mighty and meek Moses. He is such a type and shadow of Jesus. Yes, he could have made that list as well. But to see this promise that Jesus quotes, it shows up elsewhere in Scripture. New Testament, Book of Mormon. This is something to hold on to. A new Moses will come. A Moses 2.0. Jesus will come and free his people. For the seventh top messianic prophecy, I will give it to the psalmist. And for this one, you could have included all the other messianic psalms that are in the book. There's so many of them. But this one, Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For Jesus to quote that from the cross and hope that his hearers could keep on quoting, knowing all that he was feeling as he felt abandoned by his Father. There, are, there is so much of the Messiah in the hymn book of ancient Israel. But this is one of the most important. For number six, can I turn to Zechariah 13.6? And so many messianic prophecies in Zechariah. But let me give Zechariah the crown for this and, and include them all under this one heading. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? And he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. From Zechariah, we could have included the triumphal entry. We could have included the betrayal by Judas. But this one, which combines atonement from the first coming and deliverance from the second coming and recognition from his people, the beautiful, merciful use of the passive voice there as we studied when we were in Zechariah, such a powerful messianic prophecy. But the top five, now honestly, we could include all top ten just from Isaiah alone. But for number five, can I speak of Isaiah's prophecies regarding the atonement of Christ? This one from chapter 53, 
Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The entire chapter could have fit. Abinadi would back me up on that. He quoted the entire chapter. But to see such, a verse so saturated in, in what Jesus would do in Gethsemane and on Calvary, that there's such a powerful prophecy there. Number four, I would give to Isaiah also. And perhaps the only reason I did this one above number five was because it's Christmas time. And so if number five was his prophecies of, of atonement, number six is his prophecies of birth. This is condescension and incarnation, which then inform atonement and resurrection. But number four, from Isaiah 7:14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. To that can we add, with Handel's help, Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That those are verses worth singing hallelujah about. And to take the hallelujah chorus, to take Handel's Messiah, to take its witness of both Christmas and Easter all rolled into one. Oh, for number four, let me give, let me give the, that credit to Isaiah for those magnificent messianic prophecies. Now, number three, the bronze medal, we're going to stay with Isaiah. I said that we could, use, we could give him all ten. But for number three, can I use the quote or the passage from Isaiah that Moroni quotes to put into perspective the restoration of the gospel? To a sleepy-headed 17-year-old in the middle of the night, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, but it goes on for the whole chapter, really. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This is living growth out of evidence of death. This is, resur this is resurrection after crucifixion. This is restoration after apostasy. This is forgiveness after repentance. Christ is the tree of life. Christ is the branch of Israel. He's the true vine, and if we're tapping into it, then we can find life ourselves. It's such an incredible promise. No wonder the restoration grows out of it. So beautiful. How could I think of anything beyond that? Well, what are number two and, what are, and number one? Number two, sorry, I'm still giving it to Isaiah. <laughs> but this is the one that Jesus himself quotes, that he sees. He could have done this with all these other messianic prophecies that we've listed. But as he's in his own hometown synagogue in Nazareth and asks for the Isaiah scroll, he scrolls past all the Isaiah prophecies, the messianic prophecies that we've listed on our top ten already and finally arrives at Isaiah 61 and reads this passage, after which he sits down and drops the mic by saying, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So of all the messianic prophecies he could have chosen to, to specifically say, I'm the one they're pointing to, this is the one he chose. Isaiah 61, 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. 
He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Oh, it seems to summarize so much of what the Savior would do. And he did it. Best of all, he continues to do so. All that we've seen in the Old Testament is reminding us of what Jesus is still doing, alive and well, in our own lives. What could possibly top that one? For me, the number one messianic prophecy, it was hard to choose. Any of them could have topped the list, but this one I'm choosing simply because it's the very first one we see as we open Genesis. It's proof to me that creation, fall, atonement, goes in that order chronologically, but not logically. Logically, it starts with the atonement. Logically, it was the Father asking in premortality, whom shall I send? Because I've got a plan and it's going to work. I just need someone to voluntarily offer themselves to be that lamb without blemish, to be that suffering servant, to be my only begotten son in the flesh, and to fulfill every other prophecy that's been made of him, including the brutally painful ones. And when one holy hand was raised and said, Here am I, send me. Atonement preceded, at least the promise of the atonement, preceded the creation of the earth and the fall that took place there. But as soon as the fall had occurred, the good news rushes in to mitigate the bad news. As God turns to that slithering serpent, and says in Genesis 3.15 that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman, that's Jesus, in very unique ways, and the serpent. And speaking of that woman's precious seed, he says, it shall bruise thy head. We often phrase that, crush thy head. It's even stronger. And thou, serpent, shalt bruise his heel. Just a bruise. A brutal one as far as Jesus was concerned, but a redemptive one for all of humanity. This is crucifixion, but there's resurrection. This is fall, but there is atonement. And again, from the very beginning of it all, Adam and Eve, there's hope. For all of us, their posterity, there is hope because of the crushed head of the serpent thanks to the bruised heel of the Son of God. My friends, I testify of him. And especially at this Christmas season, I rejoice in his birth. I am so grateful for a year's worth of scripture study, not just to anticipate him, but to experience him day in and day out. I actually did something in preparing this last retrospective and I knew I didn't have time to reread the Old Testament, although I would have loved to. What I did instead was reread every chapter heading. And it's the fastest way you can do a flyover over the pages of the Old Testament. If you do the math, there are 39 books of the Old Testament. There are 929 chapters in the Old Testament. There are 23,145 verses in the Old Testament. If you're, if you're reading the King James, that is. And in our 203.5 hours of Unshaken Study this, this year, we read almost every 
one of those 23,000 verses. That's why it took so long, okay? We weren't as selective as Come Follow Me recommended. And I can't blame them for that recommendation, okay? We, 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 took, we bit off more than we could chew, but we chewed as much as, we, as possible. Now, I know we didn't cover, at least we didn't discuss all 23,000 plus verses, but we did discuss just about all 929 chapters. And in the last day or two, as I reread all the chapter headings, on the one hand, it was an amazing review to help me populate my top tens. But what was more fascinating to me from the experience was how relatively disappointing it was. And let me explain myself. I've absolutely loved this year of Old Testament study with you. It has been life-changing to me because despite how many times I've read the Old Testament in the past, I've never spent this many hours in it, including the hours of study to try to find things in every chapter, the hours of study to try to make sense of, of things that I would have skipped over if I had been selective. And in all my previous years of, of teaching, I have skipped over. But I didn't give myself that, that option this time. And so I learned more than ever. I learned so much during the painful hours of post-production, of staring at myself in a computer screen, trying to edit things and get rid of all my mistakes and, and just give you something that hopefully was helpful. But in the process of sitting there and watching myself, learning from things I knew God was giving you through me in the very moment, because it was nowhere in my pages of notes. It was nowhere in my preparation. It was nowhere in my mind until it came out of my mouth. And to sit there and watch myself on computer screen, it's painful by the way, but to watch myself and at times sit there aghast going, I never knew that before. Where did that come from? And I know where it came from. It came from a loving father in heaven that wants to reach his children even if he has to go through me to be able to do it on occasion. I'm honored to be a middleman for a God who, needs, who doesn't need middlemen or middlewomen, but uses them because it blesses them through the process. It's done that for me. Now, I say all that to put in perspective, like I said, just how disappointing that review was. Because... It couldn't hold a candle to the experience of reading verse by verse by verse. Chapter headings don't do justice to the contents of the chapters that they summarize. And I, I knew that. But to pay the price to read them all was to me such interesting evidence that a summary of Scripture will never hold a candle to a study of Scripture. Please remember that. And instead of just, what's the quick synopsis? Uh, can you just sum up the story in your own words? No, I challenge each of us to pay the price, to read, to study, to ponder, to internalize, to make relevant and, and then put into practice the words of actual Scripture. I testify that they're true, and I express a deep, deep love to God for them. In conclusion, can I just tantalize you with a verse from the New Testament? 
and then give you a parting gift from the Book of Mormon. And, and then we'll wrap up this year and, and turn our attention to the New Testament. The verse from the New Testament is found in Luke 24, the last chapter of Luke's testimony. And it has to do with a, a journey that two disciples were taking towards a little town called Emmaus. Jesus had just been crucified a few days before. This is now Sunday, what would become Easter Sunday. And as they walk to Emmaus, Jesus appears alongside them and joins them for the journey. He's always willing to do that for us. But he plays stupid and, and acts confused, like, why the long faces, brethren? They don't, they don't recognize him. Their eyes are withholden. And they describe, well, the Messiah, we thought he was the Messiah. We really did. We thought this Jesus of Nazareth had come to free us from Rome. But he was crucified a few days ago. But he'd said some things about a third day and rising again. And some women were saying that they'd seen him. I don't even know what to make, make of it anymore. I, I, I don't know. And then Jesus says this. Luke 24, 25 to 27, he said unto them, Oh, fools, and I'm sure he said that lovingly, or he just muttered it under his breath, but slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's how Jesus viewed the Old Testament. It was his patriarchal blessing of sorts. All those messianic prophecies, all those messages meant to point forward to him. Can you imagine the rest of that journey? And the very abbreviated Old Testament survey course that Jesus just gave them? Let's start with Moses, shall we? The books of Moses, the Torah. We'll go with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Let's go through the prophets, shall we? Major, minor, they were all major to me. And uh, well, let's walk you through it all. All the things in all the scriptures concerning myself. Can I give you a survey course on my patriarchal blessing? Can I help you find me in page after page? I pray that's happened to us this year. If it has, then perhaps as we look back on it retrospectively, we'll have the same experience those disciples on the road to Emmaus did. Because once they got there and pled with him to abide with us, tis eventide, he did. He broke bread with them. And as soon as they recognized him in that bread of life and he disappeared, they turned to one another and said in verse 32, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? That's been my prayer every week. Father, please let our hearts burn within us as you open to us through the power of thy spirit, thy holy word. Let us see thee there. Let us see thy, thy Son. Let us feel thy Spirit. Let us come to know in personal, intimate ways all that thou wouldst have us know about thee as, as we open the Scriptures together. And what was the Scriptures for Jesus? It was only Old Testament. That's all he had. For him, it was all he needed to introduce them to the living Lord. Later in the same chapter, 
Luke 24, now verse 44, Jesus goes back to Jerusalem, appears among the gathered 11 apostles and says to them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. So the, the thought of a crucifixion and a resurrection should not come as a surprise. I told you about this over and over, and I'm not the only one. So he goes on, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets, unless we think it's only Torah, law, or Nevi'im, prophets. How about the Ketuvim? How about the writings? How about the wisdom literature? How about the hymn book? So he adds, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. As far as the Gospel of Luke is concerned, Christ's post-resurrection ministry was a scriptural one. As he opened scripture, opened Old Testament scripture, Moses, prophets, Psalms, it all pointed to me. Now, my friends, I'm sorry that it was me teaching this Old Testament survey course this year instead of Jesus. I do pray that I've been able to get out of my own way and more importantly, got to get out of his way so that he could reach you in personal ways. That's been my favorite thing about reading your comments or meeting you in public is the way that the scriptures have come to life for you. This isn't about me at all and it never has been, but to let you and the word connect through the Spirit of God, so that all of a sudden you knew that the Lord was speaking to you, I pray that you have received personalized principles, tailor-made lessons, that the Lord has fit to your form and reassured you along this path. My friends, I love you, and I love Him, and I love His Word, and to be able to stand in the crosshairs, the intersection of all those loves, has been an absolute joy for me. I do pray that those things have happened because that's God's intent in giving us this gift to begin with. Which introduces our final verse from the Book of Mormon. A gift of God through His people. Something He wants to place within our Ark of the Covenant to, to remind us. This is a fascinating passage in 2 Nephi chapter 29. It comes right on the heels of one that a lot of us as overzealous missionaries would think, at least, hopefully we didn't quote it to them, but at least thought of it anytime somebody rejected the Book of Mormon with something like, I don't need a Book of Mormon, I already have a Bible. It's like, oh wait, you already have a Bible. So like a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible, we don't need another Bible. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, thank you for quoting scripture, even if you don't believe it. Well, that's not the verse I want to talk about. It's the one right after it. Because if that verse sometimes pushes back against those who don't want anything besides the Bible, the next verse pushes back against those who have the Bible, but don't appreciate it as much as we should. This is Nephi's words, actually the Lord's, he quotes him, in 2 Nephi 29, verse 4. Thus saith the Lord, to all you who think a Bible alone is all you need, but you don't fully appreciate that even that gift, here's the Lord's words. O oh, fools, just like Jesus said to those disciples on the road to Emmaus, they have a Bible, 
and it shall proceed forth from the Jews, mine ancient covenant people. The covenant people we've spent a full year with in all their highs and all their lows and all their steps forward and all their steps back. But these ancient covenant people that the Lord never gave up on because of his ancient covenant. Here's the Lord's question to us that are reading their words. What thank they, the Jews, for the Bible which they receive from them? Now, the syntax there is hard. When he says, what thank they, the Jews? He's not chastening the Jews for not being thankful. No, he's chastening us for not thanking the Jews. Reread it. What thank they, we, we Gentiles, all of us reading Jewish scripture this year, all of us that have been audience to God's communication with his covenant people, do we thank the Jews for the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, which we have received from them? We are living right now at a period of increasing anti-Semitism. And that's inexcusable that it could ever rise after something as horrific as the Holocaust. How do we feel about God's ancient covenant people? Do we realize what they've done to give us God's word? His ancient covenants. And to open the doors of those covenants so that even we, the rest of the world, might be able to enter that covenant relationship. How does the verse end? Do they, and he's speaking to all of the people that have the Bible but don't appreciate where it's coming from, so let's include us, we villains of the Old Testament. Do we remember the travails and the labors and the pains of the Jews and their diligence unto me in bringing forth salvation unto the Gentiles? Did you catch what the Lord said there? How does he refer to the gift of the Old Testament? As salvation. The Jews have brought forth this Bible that you're taking for granted. This Bible that you think is all you need, but you don't even show how much you need it by actually using it. You haven't sewn up the bag and have something to show for this, all, all this opportunity I've given you for Old Testament study. Now, it was salvation they brought forth. And that verb comes on the heels of all kinds of nouns that describe what it cost the Jews to bring them forth. Look at that last sentence again. Do you remember the travails? Powerful noun. The labors, the pains, their diligence to be able to bring forth this book that brings salvation. Or at least introduces him through whom salvation will come. Think about, especially you sisters, you sister saints, you heroines, of modern day. When you hear travails, labors, and pains to bring forth something, what are you thinking about? What do you think about when you hear labor and pain and travail in the same sentence? You mothers know it best because you've experienced it. When you brought forth a baby. The Old Testament is, is the baby that the house of Israel has brought forth. And in delivering it, they've delivered us all. The Old Testament is foundational scripture upon which the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants all build. I testify of its truth.
I testify of the salvation that comes through Jesus, who is introduced to us first in the pages of the Old Testament. My dear friends, my beloved brothers and sisters, I express my gratitude to you for the chance to study this incredible book of Scripture together. I, with you, express our collective gratitude to God's ancient covenant people for all that they did to write, to preserve the Word of God and His ancient covenants. On behalf of all of us, I collectively praise our Father in Heaven for inspiring His prophets with such magnificent words and for sending the Spirit every time that we open His Word with an open heart and allow Him to rewrite it on our fleshy tables. My friends, please, this Christmas season, come boldly to the throne of grace. It's right here before us. Gently ask the Lord to lift the lid so that you can place within that ark the reminders of your covenant. The Father lives. He sent His Son. He continues to send His Spirit. He's granted us these words, and I pray we can show Him just how much we prize this present by opening the gift, doing something with it, and returning it to the Lord we love with increase. May that be our gift to Him is my prayer this Christmas. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.